to Broadway Radio's This Week on Broadway for Sunday, April 5th, 2020. My name is James Marino, and in the broadcast today we have Peter Felicia and Michael Portantier. Peter is a playwright, journalist, and historian with a number of books. His columns appear at Masterworks Broadway, Broadway Select, and many other places. Good morning, Peter. Hi. Good morning. Also with us is Michael Portantier. Michael is a theater reviewer and essayist. He is the founder and editor of CastAlbumReviews.com. He is also a theatrical photographer whose photos have appeared in the New York Times and other major publications. You can see his photography work at FileSpotPhoto.com. Good morning, Michael. Good morning. Good morning. How are you two doing? Fine. Okay. Good. Good. Yep. Staying in? Yeah. Physically fine. Oh, yeah. Good. Yeah. yeah. No, yeah. that's, that's yeah. very true. We've had uh, quite the... Uh, mm, haven't we? <laughs> quite the week of... of People that we know and love announcing yeah. that they have yeah. had the COVID, COVID virus, uh, that they are recovering, that they have recovered. And, you know, unfortunately, news is still pouring in that uh, some of the folks that we know and have admired for over the years have passed mm. away. Yeah. So and actually, one in particular. I mean, there are so many. It's so yeah. it's so sad. We could go on and on, but one sure. I, I wanted to mention just because I just last week or whenever it was, I brought up how I had watched that video of Pearly mm-hmm. um, mm-hmm. that I really loved, and sure enough, a couple of days later, Lewis Johnson. Yeah. who choreographed the um, show and also uh, his, I suppose his other most famous credit was The Wiz, the movie of The Wiz. Um, he died. Mm. So I uh, just wanted to make a little tribute mm. to him. Yeah, it's been, um, it's been crazy. We still haven't gotten any official word about the return of, uh, of Broadway or any sort of normalcy, but, you know, we talk mostly about Broadway here and, and we're uh, very concerned about um, uh, Broadway, off-Broadway, regional mm-hmm. theaters, summer mm-hmm. stocks, things like that that are mm-hmm. – we have no idea what's going to happen there. But certainly it is the least of, uh, of important things in the, in the scheme yeah. of what's yeah. happening these days. Yeah. Um, the Broadway League hasn't made a, an announcement per right. se. Yeah. Um, a bunch of Broadway producers have started some funds to support the Broadway community, which is great. Some of the Broadway scene shops and costume designers and the costume builders and things like that are building masks for the uh, the uh, hospitals and uh, emergency response units and things like that, which is really just absolutely amazing. That mm-hmm. what we ha- you know the way in which Broadway just everybody rallies together and mm. gets it done, which is yeah. really wonderful. Mm-hmm. So let's uh, answer last week's trivia question. Peter, do you have an answer? Sure. Uh, of all the major Broadway songwriters, which one had the highest percentage 
when it came to working on musicals set in France. And I also said working on musicals was a key phrase. Uh, Well, 40% of the Broadway musicals to which Jerry Herman gave his talents were set in France. Dear World, The Grand Tour, La Caja Folle, and Ben Franklin in Paris, for which he wrote two songs. So um, now, so we did six other shows, two were set in New York, Dolly in Maine, two in Hollywood, Mac and Mabel, a day in Hollywood, one in Israel, Milk and Honey, and one review from A to Z, which, like all reviews, took place everywhere and nowhere. And for that mm-hmm. one, we only wrote the opening number. So, yes, Tony Janicki was the first to get it, followed by Greg Christensen, Brigadude, Ingrid Gammerman, and Fred Abramowitz. All right. What's the question for this week? Fine. A famous musical says that its main character was born in October, but in the source material that's inspired this hit, the character was established as born on leap year day. Who's the character and what's the musical? <laughs> okay. <laughs> I don't think it's uh yeah, pirates because that doesn't that only applies to half of what you said. Right. <laughs> yes, though pirates of course um indeed, you know, uh, <laughs> does qualify for the second half, right? Um by the way, in terms of the um uh, French question here, a lot of people guess Cole Porter. Mm, uh, starting with, yeah, <laughs> starting with Michael Potentier who heard the question first, of course and Jack Leshner, uh, too. Many others said Cole Porter, which I understand, of course, because Cole Porter was crazy about France, especially Paris, and I love Paris and all those other songs. Um, But nevertheless, I I did a quick, not an official math thing, but just a a quick count, and about 25% of his shows were uh, set in Paris. So um, close, but, um, but not the right answer. Well, he wrote so many more shows than Jerry Herman. Also. Of course, yeah. of course. Yes, indeed. Well, I love New York in June. How about you? <laughs> oh, I do too. And I remember the first time I ever heard that song, which was on an I Love Lucy episode, and um, I immediately fell in love with it. So anyway. So I want to turn the tables on Peter and Michael here oh. um, that, you know, over the years we've had uh, you asking some of the most uh, uh, yeah. wonderful questions of our guests over wonderful. these years. Yeah. <laughs> but I wanted to find out from you uh, the famous Felicia question. If you were able to get in a time machine and go back to the opening night of any uh, one production, what would it be? Well, mine would definitely be the Cradle Will Rock because of the um, uh, all the drama that surrounded it. Um, if, uh, if you don't know what I'm talking about, uh, there's a movie, The Cradle Will Rock, which deals in part, not totally, in part with this um, episode. In fact, Orson Welles did a screenplay, which is even published. I even have it. Um, and uh, for a movie that never happened. But anyway, uh, this was a WPA project that was closed down by the government on the day they were supposed to open. And John Houseman and Orson Welles um, said, no, Mark Blitzstein's show will go on, and they had to find another theater. They did. It was about 25 blocks north. Um, Everybody who was to see the show and everybody who was involved with it marched all the way up to um, the Venice Theater, which no longer exists. I think it was near Columbus Circle. And uh, what had happened was that um, Actus Equity says that 
under these circumstances, the actors couldn't go on. So uh, they sat in the theater. And when the time came to uh, do the show, each one stood up and did his or her part. Uh, while Mark Blitzstein on the piano uh, played uh, the piano and uh, occasionally chimed in. Um, interestingly enough, um, when Cradle of Rock is done now, it's done with piano more far more often than not hmm. and there were orchestrations of course because they were going to use and f- sometime i think it was around 1960 um was it city opera somebody did um did it with the orchestrations and i gotta tell you <laughs> having been used to the phenomenal 1964 recording that jerry orbach uh starred in an off-broadway production which is one of my desert island discs um a two-disc set by the way in the day of records. Uh, and I don't think it's ever been officially released on CD. I'm, I, I've never seen if it has, but anyway, um, f- having loved that album like crazy, um, the orchestration sounds so odd to me. And of course, had the show gone on as normal, we would accept them. I, I would accept them as um, standard issue, but, um, but to be part of that night would have really been something. And by the way, when I was asked this question, I was on a panel with um, Clive Barnes, uh, who, who was reviewing for the Post, Howard Kissel, who was reviewing, reviewing for the Daily News, and Gretchen Van Benthuisen, who was um, reviewing for the Asbury Park Press. We were a paper mill. And Richard Kornberg, uh, the press agent, was the moderator, and he asked this question. And Howard was the first to answer, and he said, Hamlet. And um, Clive <laughs> Barnes said, yeah, that's what I was going to say, Hamlet. And Gretchen figured she'd follow suit and said, yeah, Hamlet. And when I told this story uh, later, somebody said, uh, one of my friends said to me, and you said Rockabye Hamlet, right? <laughs> I said, of course not. I saw Rockabye Hamlet. <laughs> and uh, I answered with the cradle of rock. So anyway, that's my official answer. Okay. Michael, how about you? If you were able to go back in time to one production, what would it be? Well, first of all, thanks for uh, giving us notice that you were going to ask this right before we started recording, because <laughs> I, if you had asked me probably just point blank, I would have had to really think about it. Of course, there are so many possibilities. Aren't there? Aren't yeah. there? Um, there are the ones that, uh, if only for the historical value, uh, I guess that's an easier way to narrow it down, showboat might have been an amazing thing to see uh, and to see the audience reaction to something that like, that was really unlike anything they had ever seen before. Um, of course, there's the glass menagerie um, mm-hmm. with the fabled, fabled performance of Lorette Taylor, which is often cited by mm-hmm. people who did see it as the greatest performance they've ever seen in their life. Although, you know, I always wondered um, parenthetically, uh, she did, she was pretty famous for having personal issues. You bet. And I do wonder if um, if uh, she was how consistent she was. Oh, from, good point. Yeah, yeah, you know. But um, I think I think one of apparently one of her uh, one of her great talents as an actress was making it appear so spontaneous and the illusion of the first time. So in that sense, uh, I, I mean, I don't think she froze. I wouldn't expect that she froze quote unquote, the performance and did the same thing every night in the same line readings. So there probably was a lot of leeway anyway, but I do wonder if, she, if there were issues in terms of, uh, whatever, uh, you know, uh, well, alcohol this, consumption and, uh, yeah, uh, yeah. This- this brings up a very good point. Just last night, I posted on Facebook, uh, somebody mentioned um, um, 
Lorette Taylor in the Glass Menagerie, and I talked about, I may have mentioned this on a podcast before, Carl Rossi's play Yellow to Lavender, which uh, was part of Future Fest, the Dayton Playhouse's um, annual new play festival. And uh, for the last 20 or so years, I've gone out there most years to um, be one of the five judges who judges other plays. So this was uh, a play about Tennessee Williams writing The Glass Menagerie. And, well, uh, th- do you think we should get Lorette Taylor? My God, she's such a drunk. She won't be responsible. Mm. Oh, my God, no. I don't, but she'd be so great if she were good. Yeah, but if she were good. But it, we can't depend on it. So anyway, but they, of course, they finally cast her. And opening night, they can't find her. Where is she? Oh, my God. Look at all the bars around. I mean, check every bar. That's where she's going to be. No, she wasn't. Check every, go to her toe. A million things. Look in the neighborhood. As it turned out, she was in the bowels of the basement, dyeing her dress from yellow to lavender because she said, no, no, Amanda would wear lavender tonight, not yellow. So anyway, after the play, all five of us get to talk. And all of us were talking about Lorette Taylor and how on um, the Rick McKay's documentary, everybody's saying the greatest performance I've ever seen, the performance I'd love to see more than anybody else. And all five of us just going on and on and on. Finally, we uh, take questions from the audience. And there's a woman in the front row, very, very old. And uh, she said, I saw Lorette Taylor. And we all froze. No, I, I mean, you could, it was like a sprint commercial. You know, you, you, nobody, <laughs> you could have heard a pin drop. And she said, she was all right. And, <laughs> And maybe this is Michael's point. <laughs> yeah. You know, well, well, it's just that, you know, because uh, the fact that she she did notably have those issues. Absolutely. Might, no. might mean that she was that was not necessarily consistent, but maybe she was. Who knows? Maybe she pulled it together. I'm um, telling you about the shrug this lady gave the, the, the shrug of her shoulders. She was all right. Yeah. Yeah. That's that's <laughs> hilarious. Um, uh, just to. Uh, Oklahoma uh, would be another obvious choice uh, for its historical value. But I think I, uh, my answer is <laughs> My Fair Lady, because, uh, partly because I, I, I'm one of Julie Andrews' biggest fans in the world. And, so, and there's no anything like any complete record of her in, the, in that role. And so that is something I would really, really have loved to see. You know, I've often thought in, in recent years... Um, this would have been, I guess, unprecedented, but she could have, even after she had her vocal problems, she could have recorded um, the role, uh, the, the lines of sure, the role. Sure, 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 <laughs> and, sure. And at least given us that record of it. And Wouldn't you, that have been something? You know, they could, they could have put it together with... Um, the uh with the cast album you know sure and then had a sort of a complete record of her in in the role at least at least audio wise so i'm uh, i'm sorry that didn't happen but it probably never occurred to anyone no i'm sure it didn't but you know i I, james alluded to the fact that i asked this question quite a bit and um it's something i always ask in an interview and uh when i was interviewing nell benjamin the uh, lyricist of mean girls and legally blonde um um, the interview, I always end interviews when the tape runs out, you know, <laughs> using cassette tape. And it, I said, okay, well, thank you. And she said, wait, 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 wait. I'm told you always ask people what they'd go back and see if they, if, if they had a time machine, I had my answers ready. I mean, you know, so, so I am famous for asking that and, um, of, of fans and celebrities. And ironically enough, as big a hit as my fair lady is, I don't think anybody has ever said that to me. The number one answer is Follies. Um, and of course, a lot of people don't give it because they saw it. But nevertheless, Follies is the number one answer. Two is Merman and Gypsy. Three is Streisand and Funny Girl. Four is West Side mm. Story. Five is Showboat. 
Six is Lady in the Dark. And what's really surprising to me, seven is Brigadoon. I'm amazed how many people want to see the original Brigadoon. I wouldn't have thought that would have been on the list. But that's the big surprise to me. <clears throat> but, Michael, I think this is the first time I've ever heard Fair Lady. Oh, interesting. Well, I yeah. said uh, largely for the reason that I stayed. I understand. Uh, and, and, you know, there it's are so, plenty it's... of Julie Andrews fans out there. You know, <laughs> so, you know, plenty. Yeah, 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 yeah. You may be the champ, but there are plenty others. Well, as far as just briefly, as far as uh, Streisand and Funny Girl, of course, there is a, a famous case of someone apparently being tremendously inconsistent from night to night. So it, uh, from what I hear, it is likely that uh, if someone could do that, they might have been very disappointed depending on what night they happen to be transported back to. <laughs> and in fact, um, I've heard um, a little bit of a uh, tape of her final performance, her final performance, um, which, you know, obviously is a, is a mm -hmm. big occasion in funny girl. And, uh, and two things I noticed some of the dialogue, she absolutely speeds through like literally as if she can't wait to get it over really with. Mm. and even and uh oddly enough uh the song um cornet man yeah is is about five times faster than it wow. is on the cast album so i don't know if she decided during the run that there were certain moments that she just really didn't care for and wanted to get through and communicated that to the conductor and everyone else or or i don't know maybe it was it. well i have that recording and i've never listened to it and i'm certainly going to do as soon as we get off to mm -hmm. see about cornet man and some of the dialogue but i will tell you this i saw the show 14 months after it had opened i i, I saw the one two three four five sixth performance in boston when it was trying out but um 16 months later, uh, my uncle took his nephews to the World's Fair. Well, one of us didn't go to the World's Fair. One of us went to Funny Girl. And um, <laughs> so this was July of 65. And aside from dropping the Who is the Pip with Pizzazz section of um, I'm the Greatest Star, which I'll be interested to see if that she did on the recording of the final performance as well. But um, aside from that, um, she was fine. And I mean, by that time, um, I really knew who was walking through performances and who wasn't because I had seen performers walk through performances. And um, so I thought she was fine. And again, as you say, Michael, hit or miss, you know, I mean, it might've been a day when she felt like doing it, who knows, but, um, but of course your point is well taken. As William Goldman says in the season, um, somebody described one of her performances as a funny girl as an ape in search of a banana. So, um, <laughs> you know, so who knows? Well, I'm glad you got her on a good night. And uh, uh, yeah, she she does do that. The whole song in that in that final performance. Uh -huh. Aha. Uh -huh. Aha. Yeah. Aha. OK. <laughs> so uh, uh, I'm going to modify the question a little bit for myself that these are things that I could have uh, seen. Uh, I didn't need a time machine. Um, but, uh, and I was, I was fortunate enough to go to opening night of Ragtime in New York. Mm. But, uh, uh, but what was Ragtime like in the workshops? I mean, uh -huh. I, I, I'm interested in, in, you know, what was it like in that room during the development of Ragtime? Uh, and I th and it, it's it's always so shocking to me that Ragtime is not more of a commercial success than it was in both of its Broadway incarnations. I agree. Uh, Scottsboro Boys. 
what the hell happened there? Why, mm -hmm. why didn't that thing become a hit? And then of the hits, what was it like, you know, working through the original Phantom in London? Did they know that how many years later is it, Peter, that they're gonna, <laughs> it's still going to be making money? I know, isn't it something? It opened uh, in October of 86, so we, uh, I guess 85 is what we're really uh, yeah. talking about, you know. So, um, yeah, um, I, I, of course, there are so many, God knows. Um, so many people who were at the closing of Follies tells me that, mm. tell me that that was uh, the greatest experience they ever had in their lives, and that even eclipses uh, people who were also at, as I was, the um, chorus line performance when it broke the record when Michael Bennett brought all these people back and all that. So, um, so really, um, it, it really was something. I'm also sorry I missed Legends, um, the Mary Martin, Carol <laughs> Channing star. Um, it was in Philadelphia, you know, but I was sure it was going to come in, you know, and that was that. And um, um, I'm sorry I didn't go to a Mother's Kisses in New Haven. Uh, it wasn't that far away from Boston. Uh, I didn't even give it a thought. Um, but that was a musical with Beatrice Arthur that closed in Baltimore. Um, I may have told the story about my ex-wife um, seeing it. She's from Baltimore, and she saw it, and she told me that there was one scene that was set in a forest, and the next scene was set um, in an apartment. They couldn't get a tree off. That there was there was Beatrice Arthur in the apartment talking to her kid with the tree in the middle of the apartment. And I always thought that my wife was exaggerating, but literally this this January. Um, <laughs> I was at a party and Patrick Cook, who's one of the uh, leaders of the BMI um, Lehman Engel workshop, was there. And he said, you know, I was in a mother's kisses. I said, you were. I said, listen, my ex-wife told me there was a night she was there and there was a scene in the forest. And he immediately interrupted me and said, the tree in the apartment. Yeah, he knew exactly where I was going. And so <laughs> so um, my wife, who was always uh, a very truthful woman, I have to admit, um, certainly did not exaggerate. But it did seem like it was. Yeah, yeah, anyway, so. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my goodness. That's great. I don't think I've ever heard that story. So I don't think you told it here. Oh, good. I'm glad. Um, so, Peter, I'm going to uh, ask you a question here I didn't prep you for. So if okay. you don't have the answer to this, we'll come back to it later. Okay. But uh, one of our listeners, uh, David, uh, David Ezel or Ezel, I'm, I'm, un I'm unsure of your pronunciation, David, I apologize. Uh, he wants to know, aside from Hello, Dolly, what shows were revived with at least one principal member from the original cast? Oh, um, what immediately comes to mind, and I'm amazed this is what comes to mind, um, John Cullum did a revival of Shenandoah. Huh, um, yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, um, and if we talk about straight plays, God knows, uh, Hal Holbrook came back in Mark Twain. Mm -hmm. I'm not sure if that counts, you know, because it's just a one person show, but, um, but anyway, that certainly happened. And Pro Bailey came back as Dolly as well in a production I was told was super cheap, um, that it really looked like it cost a dollar 98. Um, I, didn't yeah, I saw it. that. Yeah, yeah. I saw it. Yeah. Uh, did it look cheap? It was pretty cheap, and it was at the Minskoff, I believe. Uh, yeah, that's right. Yeah. 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 Well, you know, I think there are quite a few. Oh, uh, there are. Yeah. Uh, there's, uh, there's Rex Harrison and My Fair Lady. Sure. Of, cor of course, Yul Brynner yeah. and The King and I. Right. Uh, Richard Burton and Camelot came back. Yeah. 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 So um, there are many, many more that don't come to mind at the moment. But, um, but really, I, I, I did an article on this once, and I remember getting to 21 at least. So, um, so um, I'll have to look up and see if I can find that article. 
So uh, today is April 5th, but April 4th holds uh, uh, a special place in Broadway legend, Peter, doesn't it? Yes, because of uh, Anyone Can Whistle of Follies, which you talked about. <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs> right. Good answer. Yeah, I may have told this story before that uh, – that, um, uh, the Wednesday after Anyone Can Whistle opened, which was the last Wednesday it would ever see because it would close that following Saturday after nine performances, Variety came out. And I got Variety, and it said, open to three raves and three pans. And I had never seen anything like that. I had seen unanimous raves for Barefoot in the Park. I had seen unanimous pans for uh, Abraham Cochrane, which lasted one night. But but never three raves and three pans. My God, that was so curious to me. So anyway, I closed. And um, a, a bit later, um, I went to Leachmere Sales, um, a store in Boston that um, did have the second least expensive records. There was um, <laughs> Jordan Marsh was the one that said, we will not be undersold. And they always sold. Uh, everything for a penny less, but Leachman sales had parking. So as a result, I used to buy my records there. And um, I went in with my cousin, Anthony, um, who was younger than I. And as a result, just loved to, I could drive, he couldn't get, and he just loved to go anywhere. So anyway, um, there's the album of Any Can Whistle. And I point to it and I said, that show ran nine performances and they still made an album. And Anthony droned. So I suppose you're going to get it, huh? <laughs> and I said, no, I don't think so. It must be terrible. It ran nine performances. <laughs> and he said, my God, if they can't sell it to you, how can they ever hope to sell a single copy? <laughs> and that album has seldom, if ever, been out of print. And I mean, there's even an eight track of anyone could whistle, which lives in this apartment. <laughs> so I mean, really, you know, who knows? Who knows? Um, but yes, uh, there's no question that Follies and um, a fun fact um, is that David Bird, who designed the logo, to me, the greatest logo in the history of Broadway, um, was born on April 4th, and he was literally 30 years old that day when it opened. So uh, that's kind of interesting, too. I'm really glad that for anyone can whistle that they finally added back There Won't Be Trumpets, because as I think we discussed not long ago, I just love that song. Was it not till the first CD release? Uh, that's right. Here? Yeah, yeah, I thought so. Yeah, yeah, because they didn't have room on the LP, you know, for one thing, but uh, but also it had been dropped from the show. Right. It's amazing. It's amazing the show got recorded. But when you really think of it, it's truly amazing they would record a song that had been dropped. I mean that that's uh, that's astonishing to me. Yeah, except I think that they knew. Um, I mean, I, I'm sure they had extremely mixed feelings about dropping it. And I've always thought that they said, well, let's at least get it down, you know, for the record. And uh, I, that's what that's how I always assume that went down. And I'm so glad they did, because I think Lee Remick does a wonderful job. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. But I mean, it's just so ironic that um, we, if, when you watch the company documentary, you know, mm. the time is of the essence in these things. They've oh, yeah. got to get it done in one day. And especially for a show that's not going to sell many recordings, at least nobody's going to think it is at that point in time. It's amazing. They took the time to do it. Now, of course, that wasn't the only, this might have been a good trivia question. What uh, Sondheim songs um, were cut that were added to uh, the album. And of course, Joanna, the judge's song where he flagellates himself, um, was of course dropped uh, very quickly. I think maybe even after the first preview of Sweeney Todd, but it made the album. And 
<laughs> we're all used to it. I don't think I've seen a production of Sweeney Todd since that doesn't use it. Um, everybody uses it now and thinks nothing of it. Um, but uh, it was very controversial in the stay, and that's why it was dropped. But Sondheim's insistence that it be on the album. I don't know that he insisted that there won't be trumpets be uh, recorded. It's an easy guess to make, but... Um, the real bottom line is Goddard Liebeson wanted that show to, to live on. And maybe he was the one who said, um, that's the record producer, by the way, saying, um, yes, let's do it. But it's very curious, very curious indeed. (laughs) So, um, we were talking about what we should talk about this week. (laughs) And uh, the topic of flops I've loved came up. So, Peter, why don't you get us off on some flops that you've loved? Well, I'll, I'll start with one that's really very obscure. And I will admit that I did not see the original 1972 production of Joan, uh, like Joan of Arc, which it was an update of Joan of Arc. And um, it was done by Al Carmines, who really marched to a very different drummer, believe me. Um, he was... Um, in, in some religious order. I don't know if he was a priest, I don't know if he was a minister, but it's amazing to me that he wasn't defrocked with some of the things he did, <laughs> including uh, Joan, which I caught up with in 1975 in, um, at a semi-professional production, I think, um, and um, directed by Larry Lunan, um, a terrific production phenomenal and i'll never forget going to the Loeb drama center where art is now many years later and um there was larry loon i didn't know who he was but he there was a critic there arthur friedman and um and he said hello uh, arthur and arthur friedman said larry loonan you know with real you know disdain in his voice <laughs> and i said you're larry loonan Oh, my God. I saw Joan. I loved it. It's one of the few shows that I saw on one night. And the next night I came immediately back. And Larry Luna points and says, see, Arthur, see, see. And Arthur Friedman gave me a disdain like you wouldn't believe. Um, And I I had known him for a long time um, on stage because he was an actor who used to act with Stockard Channing and Tommy Lee Jones in uh, productions um, around the Cambridge area. But anyway, Joan is a musical about three people um, who are anti-war. I mean, the Vietnam War was still raging. And they have um, a very uh, sexual relationship, all three of them. And I will quote one of the songs. It's so nice to cuddle in a threesome. Three's the magic number for love, surrounded everywhere by tenderness and care on the left and on the right, below you and above you. Three's a lot more fun for you than two, for there's lots more you can do when you're doing it to two and two are doing it to you. I mean, it went on like that in my favorite line, which I would have thought would have driven him out of the order was, now we understand the Holy Trinity. My God, I mean, that's amazing to me that uh, that should happen because... How they let this guy stay in whatever religious order he was in is just beyond me. So um, there's also a tremendous spiritual done by um, a nun. And it, it, it has that gospel feel. And of course, I can't um, begin to replicate the gospel feel. But think of a real spiritual, except the lyrics go all against it. Uh, the, the song says, faith won't do a single thing for you. You're still going to suffer. You're still going to die. And God won't even tell you the reason why. I mean, and, you know, and, and to hear this, you know, rousing spiritual that usually you hear, you know, God is great, was just incredible. And uh, I will never forget Joan, even though here it is, what, 45 years later? And uh, here I am still quoting it. And um, 
There is an LP, a double LP set of the entire show. Um, and on President Records, which I've never seen another album released on President, um, I have a feeling they just decided to make their own label and their own recording. So I don't know if it's easily found on eBay or Amazon or whatever, but it does exist, and it's the whole show. Frankly, um, that's a bit much. I wish there had been a conventional cast album with just the songs because um, I think the songs are terrific, terrific. And um, so for those of you who are really into obscure musicals and don't know about Joan, try to find out about it. I think you'll have a good time. Michael, how about you? Well, one show I thought of was Steel Pier, which uh, I don't think came up when we were talking about John Kander uh, and Fred Ebb recently. But yeah, that uh, this actually also goes back to your previous comment, James, about uh, what was it like in workshop? Yeah, (laughs) because every person I know who was at the workshop of Steel Pier says that it was just fabulous and they thought it was going to be a huge hit and beloved by everyone. And then um, it doesn't seem like anyone can really put their finger on it, but uh, something happened, I guess, uh, from there to, to (laughs) opening night on Broadway. And it just really got a lot of mixed reviews and, and there were problems in it. And there was enough about it that didn't work that the, the really good things in it, seem to um, not be enough. But I, uh, overall, I, I certainly recognize the problems. There, there are a couple of weak songs I can think of. Um, but I loved it overall, including the, um, the general concept, which seems to be an issue for some people. It was, uh, apparently, they, they originally wanted to do a musical of they yeah, shoot they horses, horses yeah. don't they? Which is a movie about the uh, the dark side of the dance marathons of the depression. Uh, and I guess from what I hear, they couldn't get the rights or whatever. So they wrote uh, their own show uh, around the, the general theme of the dance marathons. And David um, uh, Thompson wrote the book. And it was about uh, a, a stunt flyer uh, originally played by Daniel McDonald, who um, meets uh, this woman played by Karen Ziemba, uh, and she is uh, uh, she's a, like a local beauty queen kind of thing. And he meets her, and then he promptly uh, is killed during one of his stunt flights. Uh, and so then he, as a ghost, uh, comes back to kind of uh, encounter her and and interact with her during the marathon, although she doesn't know he's a ghost, at least not at first. And uh, there's all kinds of other elements to the plot. Um, The the girl, Rita, is married to a guy who's a real sleaze. Uh, He runs the the marathons, uh, aside from everything else, and he... uh, He's really not a nice guy, and so the the ghost character tries to kind of help her through that and eventually give her the strength to leave the marriage. Uh, there were apparently um, uh, so there was much discussion as to uh, how it was going to be made clear and when it was going to be made clear that this character 
the Daniel McDonald character was a ghost. And I think uh, what I've heard is that originally we didn't realize that until the end of the first act when he, um, he makes uh, what happens is Rita falls uh, with uh, during the uh, mm-hmm. during the dance marathon, and that would disqualify her. Uh, but so he makes time go backwards, and we actually see the dancers for a few moments dancing backwards. Uh, and then when he reruns it again, she doesn't fall. So that I believe is when you first uh, knew that he was a ghost in the first incarnation. But then uh, apparently a lot of people were confused and didn't understand what was going on. So by the time I saw the show right after it opened, um, the first thing we see is uh, we hear kind of a, like a crash off stage and we see Bill, I believe his name was um, rising from the ground with lots of smoke around him. Mm. And he looks up and says to the heavens, it says something like, Oh, I understand one week, one week. I have one week, uh, you know, to meet her and, and, and make a change in her life. Um, so I thought it worked really well that way. Other people did not. But my point is that there is so much in the score, the Cantor and Epps score, uh, that's really wonderful, aside from the, the, the story elements. And in particular, um, a song called The Last Girl I'll Ever Love, which is sung by Bill. It was beautifully performed by Daniel McDonald, um, who left us several yeah, years ago yeah. uh, due to a brain tumor, yeah, a, a yeah. really, really sad story right, there. Yeah. But he, uh, he did a, a gorgeous job with that song. And I remember that even at the time when the show opened, that even people who had major problems with it, it seemed like everyone pretty much recognized that this was a, a beautiful beautiful candor and ebb song so i uh so that is my my those are my main memories of steel pier the irony is that um in denver around i think it was around 1991 or so um i saw a musical version of they shoot horses don't they Hmm. literally that was the title of the show um and uh, uh a composer named robert sprabery did it and it's just so bizarre when you think that um, somebody who is not nearly as known as Candor and Ebb, to say the least, would be able to write this musical. I, I don't know what happened. And this, of course, is before Steel Pier. So um, it's really bizarre to me um, how it happened. But I, I think I remember hearing that they got the rights to the novel, and that's why they were able, mm-hmm. while Candor and Ebb wanted the movie. Um, I'm not saying that's true. I'm only saying that rings a bell with me. But anyway, I did see a They Shoot Horses uh, musical, so um, it is kind of ironic that that would be the case. The thing about Steel Pier uh, is that the Theatre World Awards uh, picked out a young woman named Kristen Chenoweth. Isn't that something? Yeah. Making her Broadway debut. Yep. I wonder That's what's right. happened with her. I've never heard from her Indeed, again. you know, I mean, really. And th- that was really something. By the way, I was not on the committee then, so I'm not mm. taking any credit for it. Wow. But what I will say is that committee, you really got to give it credit because there were a lot of people in that show, a lot of mar- marathon dancing. You need a lot of people. And the fact that that committee pointed uh, and noticed her uh, was really a terrific feather in their cap. So, and also, um, I believe I have heard that some of her material was cut. Oh, is that right? 
Uh, mm. She did retain uh, one one song, I believe, where she sings high soprano. Uh, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. And yeah she yeah, really yeah. made an impression in that. Yeah, but I think yeah. that her that she had more in the in terms of singing and also in terms of lines in terms of her subplot. Uh huh. Let's uh, go through Steel Pier for a second. Gregory Harrison, Daniel McDonald, Karen Ziemba, Deborah Monk, Allison yeah, yeah, Bevan, yeah, yeah. Andy Blankenbuehler, Joel yeah, Blum, yeah, yeah. Brad Bradley, Ron Carroll, Kristen yeah. Chenoweth, mm-hmm. Rosa Curry, Robert Fowler, Ida Gilliams, John C. Havens, Jack Hayes, Joanne Hunter, Mary Isles, John McManus, Dana Lynn Morrow, Daniel McDonald, Elizabeth Mills, Gregory Mitchell, they're double casting, um, K- Casey Nicola, yeah, Adam yeah. Pelty, Adam Pelty, all mm-hmm. right, mm-hmm. Sarah Shannon, Timothy Warman, uh, Valerie Wright, so... Valerie wow. Ryan, I, I saw yeah. her do uh, the Gwen Verdon role in um, Redhead at Goodspeed. So, uh, yeah, um, really um, uh, a very impressive show in many respects. What I remember, by the way, um, was the fact that what made Karen Ziemba's character famous is that when Lindbergh came back to America after his record-breaking flight to uh, nonstop to Paris, she was the first person to rush up and kiss him, and she became a minor celebrity for that, um, which I thought was a very nice detail. <laughs> <laughs> I like that a lot. <laughs> I think, by the way, that Mark Kudish was in the workshop uh, of Steel Pier. He, mm, he, he didn't. Yeah. Uh, he wasn't in the show because he was doing something else. I think High Society. Yeah, uh, and right. uh, I, I believe that's where he met Kristen. And as I'm sure many yeah. of us remember, ah, right. they were engaged for a while. That's right. Yeah. 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 They were. Yeah. So I did my homework wrong. Oh, uh, when you guys talked about flops, I've loved. Yeah, uh, I picked uh, I picked flops um, that were artistically challenged. <laughs> oh, but commercially <laughs> but, successful? No, no, commercially oh. failures and artistically challenged. Uh, oh, okay. But I think that so I'll, I'll just say aspects of love. You liked? Uh, mm-hmm. I liked aspects of love, even though I recognized that. Some of it just is really bad, and some of it doesn't make sense, and just mm. things like that. But I really, mm. I find myself every now and then going back to aspects of love. I really, mm. I really enjoyed the score, and there are some parts of it that I, I feel are really good, uh, and uh, obviously some parts of it are just they, they just. They gave up on working on it for some reason. <laughs> yeah, I have to say that some of it doesn't make sense to me. So no, the production, it, I, some of the production, uh, the production I enjoyed most was when I saw it in Amsterdam in Dutch, and I couldn't understand the language. So, because um, <laughs> uh, yeah, some of that music is really quite pretty. Yeah, exactly. So, uh, and it gave us a great Forbidden Broadway parody. Oh yes. I sleep, sleep with, with everyone. everyone. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you and you and you and you and you. Um, uh, other types of flops that I've loved. Uh, uh, Sideshow. I love the original oh, Broadway. The original yeah. Broadway cast of Sideshow. Oh yeah, um, much better than the revival. Much oh, I was better. just going to say that. Yeah, the revival. Mm-hmm. I, and mm-hmm. and again, I you know it might be one of those things where. The first cast recording that you've heard of something is yeah, the sure. thing that you really love the most. Sure, but sure. So, but I really disliked the revival, mm, um, yeah, I and understand. I loved the ori- the original production. I think I saw four or five times. Wow! Yeah. 
Uh, I did twice. Um, and uh, in a way, I shouldn't say twice because I saw a workshop literally a year before um, it was produced on Broadway. And ironically enough, it was at the very same theater, uh, the 46th Street Theater, um, the Richard Rogers. Mm-hmm. Uh, <clears throat> that, um, but, uh, you know, usually workshops are done in these little um, re- rehearsal halls or rooms or what have you. But this was really um, a, a, a production. I mean, granted, there was very little scenery. Not that there was so much in the actual production a year later, but it really was a year later, almost to the day that I saw um, the actual production. But um, yeah, Sideshow is really terrific. Uh, wonderful music, terrific lyrics. Henry Krieger, Bill Russell. Mm. <laughs> Have but. you seen uh, Alice and Emily posting on social media about so- uh, about social distancing? They have a picture of th- of the two of them from Sideshow, and the thing oh. says two sisters arguing about uh, how far social distancing they should go, or something along that's those so lines. funny. <laughs> For those who don't know what we're talking about, it it was a show about conjoined twins, and what was really interesting at the workshop that I saw, they were harnessed together. And then, uh, I don't know who made the decision, but in the real show, they weren't. And they just slammed themselves together, hip to hip, and and left it at that. But um, I I don't know who suggested, you know, we don't really need the the harness. Uh, We'll be fine. But the fact is, (laughs) they really did seem joined at the hip. Um, which was part of the wonderful illusion that the show created. But it's a great score. And really, the album, um, as James says, the original album is terrific, and it is worth getting, um, and uh, very much worth getting. Uh, it, it's one of those, you know, by the time you're about three songs in, I, I love when this happens with the show, when you're three songs in and one song has been better than the other, you know, you have total confidence that the rest of them are going to be just as good, and they really are. So, um, so I'll second that emotion, James, that a very good, uh, sad to say flop, but, um, but a worthwhile musical. Peter, do you have another flop that you'd like to talk about? Yeah. Inner city. Uh, this was a musical, um, based on a book called, um, inner city mother goose and Eve Merriam, uh, a poet took famous nursery rhymes and um, applied them to New York City when New York City was um, not at its zenith. This was 1971 that the musical came out. I guess the um, the poems came out a little before that. Ironically enough, um, here's the story about my ex-wife again. I don't, we were in a bookstore, and this book intrigued her, and she said, I want to buy this. So she did, though in the settlement, um, when we got divorced, I insisted that I take it, and she said, fine, fine. You know. Um, so anyway, it still lives here, but um, I think the problem with the show is they didn't establish in an opening number that these were going to be riffs on nursery rhymes. Um, so, uh, like, uh, Mary, Mary, how does your garden grow? And um, in in this version, is with chewing gum wrappers that were littered uh, with dog shit, literally dog shit is mentioned, mm-hmm. um, and, you know, that type of thing. So it was talking about um, how nursery rhymes do not apply to New York City in 1971. Um, a stirring score, there is a cast album still available um, through uh, Masterworks Broadway, which also has Sideshow as well. And um, I'm telling you, uh, they couldn't give away tickets to this show. Literally Christmas week, when everything sells out, 
um, they were selling tickets for $3. And this was in an era when shows were charging, let me think, 71, probably about 1750. Yeah, 1750 sounds right. Anyway, so um, 15. <laughs> Chicago was the first one to go to 1750, and that was 75. Anyway, so, you know, this is quite a discount, and this is before the TKTS booth. And I remember there was a long line waiting for tickets because the $3 people want to see shows, you know, and um, pretty much analogous to what we were talking about, Terrence McNally and his show charging $1 and $2. Anyway, as it turned out, Christmas week, $3, uh, my ex-wife and I uh, got front row seats, front row. Um, after waiting in line, it was just amazing. There was about a half hour wait, but, um, and it was thrilling. Now, some of you may have heard of the show because Linda Hopkins, who was in it, won a Tony, which is pretty good. You know, when you, when you win a Tony for a show that lasts about three months. And, um, and so she was a big black blues singer who, um, really, I think it was like the first time we heard that type of stirring, soulful singing that we've become accustomed to. But I really think that Linda Hopkins was a pioneer on this. Um, but to me, the score is magnificent, especially there's a song sung by um, a prostitute uh, in which she talks about the fact that um, everybody sells himself in one way or another. And she says, you do it your way, I'll do it mine, and it's fine. And the song was then replicated, the same melody, with um, a drug dealer uh, who talks about everybody's trying to push stuff onto you, you know, um, whether it be alcohol, whether it be, you know, certain products, you do it your way, I'll do it mine. Um, the album does not include the third one, which was done by a pickpocket saying, everybody's trying to rip you off, you do it your way, I do it mine. It's a terrific showstopper. Really, one of the most unheralded showstoppers in Broadway history. But I'm telling you, the music is so magnificent. And there was a, a, a reunion, not a reunion, but a few people uh, came back to do it at uh, 54 Below when they were doing that type of thing, when they were bringing back old musicals and essentially replicating the original cast album uh, with a little bit of narration. And it was just so thrilling again. And um, so I really recommend, it's one of my favorite rock musicals by far, Inner City. Um, and I am so thrilled that I got to see it live. It was the best musical I saw that season. Linda Hopkins, by the way, died in 2017. She has only four Broadway credits, and her first one was Pearly. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, <laughs> in yeah, which yeah. she yeah. just raised the roof that's with right. the opening number. Yeah, I'm not sure if she if she was in the show after the opening number. Uh, there's a yeah, I know what you mean. Yeah, <laughs> there's a brief reprise of it at the end, but sure, but sure. She's not she doesn't sing s solo there on the album, and I, I don't think she uh, was in the scene when I saw the video, but I'm not sure about that. She was really amazing. Yeah, that's a good point. You know that uh, she did seem to disappear in Pearly. Um, she also got a show of her own called Me and Bessie, um, in which um, I don't have to tell you who the Pe Bessie is. But um, anyway, but yeah, I don't know what happened to her after that. Um, was that the last one, Michael? Oh, um, I just had it. Wait. Hold okay. On a no, it's all right. Uh, yeah. Oh, uh, Black and Blue. Ah, that's right. Yeah. That was so many years later. Yes. Yeah. 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 So many. Isn't yep. that something? Yep. You know, you just can't tell the careers. Careers, you know, look like they're going to, you know, just 
on a trajectory. You know, they always say when you get sick, when you recover, it's not linear. So are careers. They're not linear either. Um, mm. You know, I mean, they, they just, you just assume there are very few Audrey McDonald's who, you know, needless to say, in more ways than one, that um, really just one thing after another just builds and builds and builds, you know. But um, for the most part, top billing one day, next day, you're touring in stock, sure. Well, but in her case, I, I mean, I don't think she thought of herself primarily as a theater artist. Oh, is that what it was? Well, I mean, that, that's, uh, that's my impression. And, and she would obviously, her voice was so special that there would be uh, relatively few uh, shows where it would be appropriate, especially in those days. Uh, that's fair. M- maybe now more, more there would be more uh, call for her incredible talent. Hmm. So, Peter, when I was looking up uh, April 4th for our show notes, um, we have, uh, as we talked about, Follies and Anyone Can Whistle. But April 5th, you know what April 5th is? No. The revival of Follies, the 2001 revival of really? Follies. Was it really? Yeah, that's too bad. You know, that, you know uh, that famous expression, you're a day late and a dollar short. Yeah. Um, that was that <laughs> revival. It was a day late and it was more than yeah. a dollar short. Um, sure. That, was, that, that may be the least successful production of Follies that I've ever seen. And I have seen Follies at Westfield High School in New Jersey. Yes. Children doing Follies. <laughs> and it was substantially better than that production uh, that was at the Belasco. The fiasco at the Belasco. Yeah. <laughs> Michael, do you have another flop that you'd like to talk about? Yes. Um, two uh, that I would mention are two shows that we scarcely can think of them as flops anymore because they've been so ubiquitous since then. Uh, the obvious first choice, Merrily We Roll Along, mm-hmm. and then The Last Five Years, mm-hmm. uh, which uh, the last five years, uh, I really think it was just a question of uh, it is a very unique show. Only two characters, two performers and of course the the chronology of the story is very odd Mm -hmm. and so it um because one person's story moves forward in time and the others moves backwards as we see uh the the uh story of their relationship their their five-year relationship from meeting to marriage to separation or divorce and uh the that this was not solved uh properly in the original off broadway production uh at least not in the opinion of many people many critics and many others because it really did not ver- run very long at all um uh, but since then it seems to have been done everywhere it's not surprising mm-hmm. that it would be because the jason robert brown score is absolutely phenomenal yes and, it is but having two characters doesn't hurt either right i, I was just about to say that it yeah uh, so and it seems that uh, every production i've seen um that is successful they really do it uh either completely as a concert uh presentation or, or very close to that. Uh, just little attempt to try to dramatize the songs in terms of acting them out. Because, uh, of course, you, it, it's difficult to do that because the other person is not supposed to be on stage uh, for many... Well, well, that's not always true. The, the other person is supposed to be on stage for a, a lot of the songs. Well, I guess. certainly when they get married. 
yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, but it's uh, it's just uh, when, when people try to add sets and props and and things of that sort, and and the question, the big question is how how much the two performers should actually interact, if at all, during the other's songs, because there's only really one uh, thing that's sort of a duet. Uh, in the middle, where they're on Central Park Lake, and uh, and he actually proposes marriage to her, uh, so it's it's not easy um, to, to decide how to do the last five years. But I think simplicity is the key, and that, that Michael, yes, how about what did you think of the film, Anna Kendrick and Jeremy Jordan, and how they attacked it in the film? You know, I just looked at it again recently, uh, a lot of it, and I my feeling was as it was going on that I would say, like, from one moment to the next, I would say that works absolutely beautifully and that does not work at all. Oh, and oh, oh, now they're back. Oh, that, yeah, this is really great. And then the next moment, oh, gosh, you know, I'm, I'm just mm. taken out of it. Uh, that That is my reaction to that, although overall, I think, they did a very wonderful creative job with it and i'm glad that it exists because that's another you know well i mean first of all it's another tool to to keep it in people's consciousness and people keep doing it on stage but but also that cast was really quite wonderful and the direction too i thought the thing about the last five years i think does it in um and i think the reason it wasn't successful on broadway uh was off broadway so, right <laughs> uh, at the Manetta Lane. Um, the reason I think is, is it's just too confusing for audiences to know that that convention is happening. One's going forward, one's going backwards. And um, the George Street Playhouse, I think, in New Brunswick, New Jersey, I think was the place that I felt solved it just by putting projections on the screen yes. um, saying, you know, summer 19, whatever, you know, I mean, I, that helps it amazingly, you know, let people know in advance what it's going to be last night, because you mentioned merrily, ironically enough, my girlfriend and I watched um, the best worst thing that ever could have happened. Um, it's on Netflix at the moment. Um, and, you know, again, we cried our eyes out. It was the fifth time I saw it, but still it, it moves me so much. And of course, there's much talk in there about the fact that people didn't understand it was going backwards. And um, how how many times Sondheim write 19, da, 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 you know, I mean, letting you know the and people were still confused. Well, I think last five years is far more confusing than merrily. So um, I think it, and it was such a simple solution to do. And I think that the fate of the uh, off-Broadway production might have been str uh, stronger if indeed they had used projections. That said, Michael, your point is well taken. It's done everywhere. So yes. as a result, it doesn't <laughs> seem to have hurt it. So I don't know if people catch on early, late or not at all, but that doesn't stop people from doing it. Though, again, I do think the two-person cast helps that a lot, too. I did see, I saw the George Street production also, and I completely agree with you. It's such a simple thing mm. to do, and it helps tremendously. I saw the uh, uh, the last five years at Chicago Northlight before it was off-Broadway. Ah. I drove out to Chicago to wow. see it, saw two, two performances of it right before it closed there, and saw lots of Broadway producers in the in the chicago north light audience uh and then it got snapped up and brought to off broadway um peter michael have you ever heard about a 
a show that had such limited financial success being made into a movie? Well, there are have recently uh, especially been a few examples of that, I think. Uh, another one is um, uh, Lucky Stiff. Yeah, yeah, that's a very good one. Good for mm. you. Yeah. And uh, for that matter, um, uh, Hello Again. Oh, yeah, well. right. Yeah. You know, yeah. these little, little indie, indie movies. And, right. uh, and really well done uh, from what I've seen of those. What's so interesting is it happens all the time. It used to anyway, I should say that, with plays. Um, <laughs> my favorite story involves Frank Gilroy, um, who wrote a play called The Only Game in Town. And uh, he went to the photocopy place to have his copy done. And even before he picked up the copy, he got a call from Warner Brother Perks saying, we're interested in buying uh, your your play, The Only Game in Town. They said, what are you talking about? How do you know about it? They said, well, we paid the guy at the Xerox uh, store to um, <laughs> to look at scripts. And if he, if he likes one, uh, he sends it on to us and we like it. So, I mean, God, uh, what could be luckier than that? Uh, the show didn't last long. Um, but recently I watched the movie of The Warlord. Um, a, a very butch picture uh, with Charlton Heston, need I say more? Um, and the reason I watched it is because it was based on a play called The Lovers. Terrible title, just too generic. It was done, um, I think, in the 50s. It ran four or five performances, but it's still got a movie sale. And, of course, the most famous one of all that will never, ever be surpassed is Everybody Comes to Rick's, a play that was never produced <laughs> that became Casablanca. So, um, but Hollywood used to snap them up in the twenties and thirties because that's where the prestige was. Broadway was where the prestige was. And they, um, were certainly hard to make, uh, movies, even of flops. I saw one the other night, um, on Turner classic, um, uh, called on the hiring line. Uh, that was the play title. The, the movie title was called, um, make your own bed. And, um, uh, again, a show that ran, I think, four or five performances and yet still got a movie sale. So it happened all the time with plays. But musicals, Michael, good for you. I wouldn't have thought of those, but um, I'm impressed that you remember those that uh, certainly answer James' question. I saw Hello Again. I, I have not seen Lucky Stiff. I uh, would like to catch up with that at some point. Uh, so back in Chicago, Northlight, um, when I saw it the first time, they had a huge, huge clock on stage that indicated mm -hmm. what was happening forward and backwards and at wh where we were. I'm not sure why it never ended up on the Mineta Lane stage, although the Chicago Northlight stage was sort of a thrust stage in much, much more space than Mineta Lane, so uh -huh. maybe that had well, changed the it. The short answer is I think it was a completely different director. Was it? I'm not sure that it was. Daisy um, Prince did it. Oh, yeah. All right. Did she do yeah. it? Did Chicago? Uh, I, I, I think I, so. I, mean, I could be wrong. Oh, okay. Uh, I, I, I'm not. I'm not 100% sure. But Jason and Daisy are as thick as thieves, and so I, I can't imagine that he. I, I mean, Norbert did it with uh, Lauren um, Kennedy. Mm -hmm. at Chicago mm -hmm. Northlight, and then she couldn't do it off-Broadway because she was in London doing King and I or Sound of Music or something like that. Uh, so that's how Sherry came into being uh, into that role. Mm. But um, 
so I, I don't I don't really know if uh, if uh, Daisy directed, but I think she did. I think that she did. I'm not sure. So uh, let's take a look here. Um, did we have any other shows that were flops that you loved that you wanted to talk about? Well, of course, sometimes we love flops um, because of expectations, and sometimes we know their flaws. Uh, and um, the Grass Harp certainly fits in, in that category. I don't think the book is very good. And I think it could be fixed in 10 minutes. But nevertheless, mm. Um, mm. the writer, Kenwood Olmsley, um, says he's never heard anybody come up with a solution to it. Um, and so um, he sticks with what he has. And um, But um, having seen it in Providence, Rhode Island, uh, back in um, January 1967, um, January the 13th, Friday the 13th, ironically enough, mm-hmm. um, that score was phenomenal. And um, also the debut to me, at least uh, of the orchestrated Jonathan Tunick, uh, who was totally unknown at that point and yet um, delivered tremendous orchestrations. And again, having the people in Providence, Rhode Island, you would never expect to be there. You know, Barbara Barry, David Doyle, um, Carol Bruce, Carol Bryce, and most amazingly, Mm -hmm. Elaine Stritch. Uh, Who would expect to see Elaine Stritch on the stage of the Rhode Island School and Design Theater? Trinity Mm -hmm. didn't have its own space then. Um, Belting out the baby love number that uh, so many of us love um, that uh, Karen Morrow does on the original cast album. Again, it took almost, what was it, four years for the show to reach um, Broadway. And when it was, it was very um, underfinanced. It wasn't even an official window card. Um, it came in for $162,000 at a time when musicals were costing a million. And so, I mean, it was really done on the cheap. And, um, it, but, Having seen it on Broadway, um, the design, though not ornate, was clever. And, um, and I, I, I thought it uh, was really quite fine on Broadway. Um, it, the score, anyway. Um, just a tremendous score. Um, Bill or Skip Hinnant, I forget which one. I never get this right. <laughs> one of the two, uh, their brothers. Um, one wound up in Charlie Brown, but the other one wound up in Grass Harp. Um, had a song called Floozies, and people would say, well, yeah, I mean, it's on the album. No, it's a very different song. Um, they rewrote it completely, and um, I do think the Floozies in the Broadway production was far superior to the one uh, in the um, Providence production. Yeah, a million flaws in it, especially in Providence at the end where people solve things by throwing pies in people's faces, you know, that type of thing. And yet... I'm telling you, by that point, I loved the music so much that I even went along with it at that moment in time. So um, a tremendous album. Again, the CD has been made available, and um, I I hope that you can find it and get it, because if you like traditional Broadway scores, this is really an extraordinary one. And not only is Clay Clay Richardson's music wonderful, Kenwood Elmsley's lyrics are terrific as well. So especially in a song called Marry With Me, um, which um, (laughs) Catherine the Maid, uh, played by Carol Bryce, um, sings about the fact that she once got a letter from a guy say, marry with me, love Bill. And she can't remember which Bill it is. (laughs) (laughs) And she goes through, was it the Bill who blah, blah, blah? Was it the Bill who blah, blah, blah? You know, that type of thing. That comes right from Truman Capote's novel in which the um, musical was based. Um, There was also a play version in the 50s 
um, I think Mildred Datwick or Mildred Dunnick, I never remember, um, played the baby <laughs> love character. But anyway, uh, that wasn't successful either. And ironically enough, if you get the book, The Passionate Playgoer, um, somebody at the time wrote a lament for the grass harp, the play now. Um, both of them, by the way, played the Martin Beck, now the Hirschfeld. And um, talking about the fact that this was a show that really should have succeeded. Um, so most interesting uh, property. And um, I'll never forget going down to um, a press trip to um, Alabama, to the Alabama Shakespeare Festival. And the woman driving us saying, yeah, we were pretty busy uh, recently. You know, here in town, there was a lot of commotion. I said, oh, yeah, why? She said, well, they were filming a movie here. I said, oh, yeah, what was it? She said, the grass harp. Now, this wasn't the musical, but anyway, um, it wasn't even the play. It was a new um, The Grass Harp. I said, wow, um, who played Verena? Who played Dolly? And she's amazed. <laughs> you know, she had no idea, you know, who these characters are. You know, here I am, you know, grilling her on who played the judge, you know. So um, <laughs> but uh, the movie's rather nice. But again, reveals the weaknesses that um, that the show has. Yeah, It's about two sisters. And um one is the breadwinner and the other one stays at home. And now the, um, the entrepreneur has met a man and um, he wants to market the dropsy cure that the sister at home makes with her, um, with the maid and um, their nephew. And um, the, 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 the sister just does not want to do it. She does not want to give that up. And it's lousy. I think when she says, please, Verena, let this one thing be mine. No, she should mm-hmm. want to share it with her sister. The problem is she should say, I don't trust that man. Um, and um, that would be interesting because, you know, when sisters have lived together for a long time and a man comes into it, uh, you know, the Irving Berlin lyric, you know, God help the mister who comes between me and my sister and God help <laughs> the sister who comes between me and my man, you know, so that's really what's going on here. And that's the real story. And uh, both of them wind up getting fooled by um, one by the man and one by this baby love character who actually winds up getting them in jail. And it's really too bad that, that, that Kenwin Olsen never realized that that's the story that sister love in the end is a very worthy thing. And even if the marriage falls apart, um, uh, I'm sorry, if, if the relationship falls apart because of two men, um, uh, one man and one uh, charlatan, both two charlatans really, then indeed, indeed, sister love is valuable and should be cherished. And I see them going off at the end of the show, much like Alban and, um, and, uh, George, um, in Lacage arm in arm, um, realizing that they're very lucky to have each other. Well, that theme sort of uh, years later became very popular in Frozen, didn't it? Yeah, Mm. indeed. Indeed. Yeah. Good point. Good point. So as we wrap up, Peter, I want to point out that the three flops that you've loved that you've talked about, Joan, Inner City, and Grass Harp, were all in 1971-1972. Maybe wow. you should write a book on the 71-72 <laughs> season. You know? How funny. Isn't that something? <laughs> I didn't realize that. Yeah. Mm. I have a couple of others I wanted to mention yeah. really briefly. Mm-hmm. Um, the Life. Ah. Yeah. The Cy Coleman, Ira Gassman yeah. show about uh, the seedy this, this era of 42nd Street right before um, 
the uh, Disney invasion. I remember Sam Harris's character. He's Sam Harris, sort of yeah. a narrator uh, and he's a, a pimp and a street person. And he refers to it was it was interesting because it was happening right while the show was being done. This whole rebirth of Times Square had just started. And he even mm-hmm. refers to the mouse uh, <laughs> in the show. I'll, I'll never forget that. It was, so that made it really extra exciting. Uh, Sweet Smell of Success. Yeah, Marvin oh, Hamlish. Yeah. Marvin Hamlish and Craig Carnelia. A uh, lot of wonderful stuff in that show. Um, the Wedding Singer, which to this day, I cannot explain why that show wasn't a huge hit. I think whatever flaws it had were very minor. I don't know. People seem to think it was uh, some silly story about the '80s, and they they thought the '80s well, humor was. People think of the the movie. The Adam Sandler movie. Yeah, I, maybe maybe a lot of them didn't even see the. Well, obviously, yeah. a lot a lot of them didn't see the musical, sure. and maybe th- thought they didn't want to because they thought they didn't want to see a musical about that movie. Uh, but I loved it, and it has, as we've mentioned many times, it has become tremendously popular in, uh, I guess, community theater and high schools and colleges and and uh, non, you know non-professional situations so that's uh, some kind of vindication i think uh for those for those writers chad beglin matthew sklar mm-hmm. um play on was a really uh enjoyable show to me it was uh an adaptation of 12th night a loose adaptation of 12th night uh and it did not have an original score it had wonderful wonderful old songs by people like duke ellington and billy strayhorn and i thought that that was really very enjoyable in, in almost every way. My only uh, negative at the time, I recall, was that I thought some of the jokes could have been funnier, uh, and I think that would have helped. But for whatever reason, it didn't catch on at all, had a very brief run. And then just um, briefly, uh, just two flop revivals uh, that come to mind are Ragtime, which... Uh, James mentioned earlier, and I guess we discussed briefly. I uh, I thought that was a beautiful revival. I, I was agree. very angry, actually, that people I know who I think should know better were like obsessing a, of uh, about ridiculous things, like the fact that it wasn't as elaborate, quite mm-hmm. as elaborate in terms of sets mm-hmm. and uh, and props, and and there were so many people who focused on the car not being a real car. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I thought, oh, come on, guys, you know, <laughs> it's that's really not that important. We have a, a, a you know, a, a large orchestra. We have a fabulous cast. We have a, a wonderfully solid production and just be be very grateful for what you got. So that made me upset. And then Finian's Rainbow is another head scratcher. As I recall, it got across the board positive rave reviews i don't recall a single negative uh, comment on that show and and the only thing i can think of is that uh as i've said before it's not um that famous a title because the movie was not a a hit uh and i don't think that movie has much um currency on home video for whatever reasons so i think it's not 
something that uh, that that can be a big impetus for people going to see revivals of shows, and and that doesn't exist in that case. So uh, that's my guess as to why. It, and I think maybe people have an impression of it as being very kind of twee and old fashioned, uh, and I suppose in some ways it is, but it is a, you know it's a satire. And uh, maybe they feel that satire hasn't aged well. I don't know. I, I, I think it has, although there were some problematic aspects to it. But I'm sorry that that wasn't uh, a hit because it, it was so well done, again, with a great cast. And, and, the, and the, uh, the musical end of it was wonderful. So that was a disappointment to me. You know, recently on Facebook, somebody brought up something alphabetically. I don't remember what it was, but it was like, name the shows you've seen alphabetically, the big hits, something like that. And I said, well, I'm going to do the flops. So that's how I'll end today by saying I saw Ari, Backcountry, Comedy, Daddy Goodness, El Bravo, Fearless Frank, Got to Go Disco, Holly Go Lightly, Into the Light, Jimmy, King David, Little Prince and the Aviator, Marilyn, New Faces of 66, Yes, New Faces of 66. It became New Faces of 68 because it took two years to get to Broadway. But when I saw it, it was New Faces of 66. Onward Victoria, Pretty Bell, or The Prince of Grand Street, Queenie Pie, Rockabye Hamlet, Senator Joe, Three Musketeers, Up Eden, Vanities, Winner Take All, Christmas in Las Vegas. Frankly, that was just a reading of a play, um, a musical version of a play done in the 60s. Yours and, and Zombies from the Beyond. So um, I can weigh in with those. <laughs> All right. So... Uh... That is quite quite the list. Um, I'm not sh- yes. I'm not sure anybody can uh, can match that. Match it? No, I don't think so. I can't. <laughs> uh, Michael, your patterns are the 1997 season where we had Steel Pier, The Life, uh, and Play On. You also have uh, some other 2002 last five years in Sweet Cell Success, mm. and then the uh, 2009 mm. Ragtime and Finian's Rainbow, both of 2009. Mm. Isn't that something? Yeah, some patterns there. They come in clumps. Yeah. (laughs) You know, uh, uh, what did I say? Um, Peter, in baseball, hits hits come like uh, hits come like bananas. They come in bunches. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Exactly. Um, At least ideally, anyway. Not if they use the bunt. I never understand why bunting is considered such a good thing. To give up a third of an inning for just uh, one base is not... Always play for a big inning. That's what I would do. (laughs) But nobody's asked me to manage even a Little League team. Well, I think that... I think that Broadway's got a better chance of returning before uh, Yankee baseball does because Broadway theaters holding 1,500 seats versus Yankee Stadium holding 50,000. I think that... And yet, did you see that um, uh, Trump uh, met at least um, on the phone or maybe from Zoom uh, with the NFL owners? Yeah. And Mm -hmm. he's urging them to start... um, in September, as as they planned. Yeah, I saw. Th- so we'll see what happens there. Yeah, I, I, I saw in NFL memes. They said that uh, if you're willing to lose uh, one team in order to uh, return the NFL season, um, how fast would you like the Dallas Cowboys to go? 
So mm. <laughs> <laughs> I thought you were going to say Patriots. Yeah. You know, I mean, maybe they're not feared anymore with Tom now, Brady. Now Tom gone, Brady but, gone uh, down to Florida. Yeah. But, uh, yeah. you know, uh, talk about mm-hmm. a Benedict Arnold there for the Patriots. <laughs> like, you know. Yeah, uh, again, I come from Boston. <laughs> Believe me, all my friends are mourning that. Yeah, everybody uh, sitting around Dunkin' Donuts complaining about that. <laughs> exactly right. <laughs> all right, so let me wrap it up for this week. Before we go, I want to remind everybody that you can subscribe to these broadcasts by going to the front page of BroadwayRadio.com. There's a subscribe link. That way, each and every time we have a new episode of This Week on Broadway, it'll be automatically downloaded to Apple Podcasts for you. Of course, uh, you don't have to listen to us on Apple Podcasts. There's many ways to listen to us. iHeartRadio plays us. TuneIn plays us. Stitcher plays us. Google Play plays us. Anywhere that you can listen to find our podcast, you can get Broadway Radio's offerings. Uh, Matt and Ashley uh, are doing some really, really wonderful work. Jenna Tessa Fox got some stuff coming up. Jan Simpson's got some things in the hopper. I have a discussion with Sammy Canold. Uh, Sammy and I chatted the other day on Zoom, and uh, we'll catch you up with Sammy. So there's a lot of things happening at Broadway Radio. Even though Broadway and Off-Broadway is officially closed, we're trying to get caught up with a lot of people that we've been thinking about over the last years and never had a chance to catch up with. Contact information for Peter, for Michael, and for me can be found in the show notes at BroadwayRadio.com, as well as links to some of the things we've talked about today. So on behalf of Michael Portantier and Peter Felicia, this is James Marino saying thanks so much for listening to Broadway Radio's This Week on Broadway. Bye-bye. Bye. His name was Bob. Bill, the heftiest man on the scene. He kept my garden green, did all my seeding. Didn't dare refuse him what he asked The high point of my past What I've been needing Lasted up to autumn Who'd have caught him If I'd had a whip Yeah He's the bill who wrote Marry with me Won't you marry with me Have to marry with me The only letter